Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not her, his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could de do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the, the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed all that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work within him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This is the word of the Lord. So... I don't know if you all got there, but what do you do when you are afraid? Does anyone want to share their thing? No. This is... Come on. Yes, Josh. So I watched a horror movie a few nights ago, and it really messed with my head. And so afterwards, John and I watched videos it's <laughs> <laughs> good. So, like, from something horror to something very, like, crafty, calming. Yeah. You know, I bet, like, quilt making shows would be similar or things. Or that's the card. Yeah, that genre. Yeah, totally. Anyone else? I watch a lot of Project Runway. Project Runway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I thought of a few things that people might do. Um, I think some people probably like uh, rationalize their fear. You know, like 
no, that's not rational. Uh, you know, that's not real. Um, anybody like comfort food? Uh, fear? Fe yeah, fears. We said a donut. I said a donut covers multitude of sins over here. You know, uh, you know, comfort food. Distracting yourself. So pottery shows, binging something. Uh, you know. Right now I'm on Brooklyn Nine Nine. So. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> we can talk afterwards. <laughs> um, how about uh, numbing your experiences through like exhaustion or some other substance? Or huh? House cleaning. House cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Or um, I'm one of these creating plans to prevent what you're afraid of so that what you're afraid of doesn't happen, doesn't have a chance to happen. Or, this is a good one, too, too bad Melanie's not here, this is hers. Uh, being willfully ignorant so that you don't have to worry. So, yeah, yeah. So I went to bed on Thursday night and everything was fine. And then... Uh, in the middle of the night, I hear Caleb groaning, and you know, it's like the worst thing in the world when you are woken up in the middle of the night to a family member that's sick, and you have to care for them, and it's worse, and not as a lack of empathy, but just like a, oh man, like, this is horrible, and maybe I value my sleep more than other people, but it's, it's hard for me. And so, you know, it's worse if it's a kid and they're like throwing up. But even with Caleb, I was like, all these thoughts, like I had gotten him his medicine and whatever, went back to bed. But then, like, I couldn't go to sleep because all these thoughts are like, in my mind, I'm like, what was I relying on Caleb to do tomorrow? Because he's not going to be able to do it. Am I going to, you know, am I going to have time to do all the things that I need to do? You know, what, you know, I'm like literally going through all the things in my mind and what I've been relying on him to do so that I can see, like, it isn't going to be possible for me to carry this out. And what do I need to change about the day? Well, then, so that's Thursday night, Friday morning, uh, my mother-in-law comes to babysit. Uh, she's there at, like, 6. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and so I'm, like, groggy. I'm, like, eating my cereal. And she's like, have you heard of this coronavirus? And I'm like, is that what it's called? Coronavirus. Coronavirus? Like, and because my, one of my coping things is also willful ignorance, I'm like, no. Like, I don't even think about it. So she's like, well, you know, like, they're shutting down China. And like, and like, and like, there's a boat out in the ocean. And it is, it is, they have, they're not letting it come back. It is quarantined out in the ocean. And people are now coming to the United States with it. And like everything she's saying, I'm like, I'm like, if rational, I'm like trying to fight rationally. I'm like, okay, probably most of this is like gained from like some sort of news source that is invalid. I don't know. But like everything she's saying is just like ticking up my anxiety a little bit more. And which was already kind of like, you know, mornings aren't good for me. So mornings are hard for me. So my anxiety was already like a little bit high because of Kayla being sick. And then it was like higher, higher, higher. And then I, I finally get away. And I get in the car, and the radio's on. And it's on NPR, of course. And they're talking about the Kronos virus on NPR. And then I get to where I'm going to work, and I open my computer, and 
to get on social media and there's a couple posts about it, different things about it. And then my mom calls. This is literally all within like an hour of a period of time. Then my mom calls, did you hear about this virus? And she's telling me the latest, which at this point is only an hour old for me, you know, because I've only known about it for an hour. Um, and it's just like getting higher and higher and higher. And, you know, then, because all this was sort of happening simultaneously, I'm thinking, I know it's illogical, but, you know, all the, the thoughts and worries and concerns that, like, spiral that can happen, it's, for me, it's so much worse before I've had, like, my first cup of coffee for the day, which, which was at this time. And so I had this thought, could Caleb have this Kronos virus? And this is before I knew anything about it, right? So I'm like, so now I'm thinking, does he need to be quarantined? <laughs> Do we have elderberry syrup in the fridge? Is it expired? Uh, you know, I'm like thinking about all of these things. And, um, you know, so that's when I took to my other coping mechanism, which is rationalism. And I told myself, no, you know what, Emily? Caleb is fine. He probably has a cold. He has a sore throat, maybe a little bit of a fever. You know, look, here's an infographic on the internet that says that this virus, the flu kills 60 times more people per year than this virus. And, and uh, look, the media is just making a big deal about this. And the risk factors for death with this virus are like the same as the flu, which is like, uh, you know, if you have a compromised immune system or you're very young or, and I'm like, and we're, none of us fall into that, those categories. Like, we're all good and we ate a lot of vegetables for dinner last night. So, like, we're good. Oh, and we have kombucha in the fridge already. Uh, like, I was divinely inspired by the spirit last night to buy it. And then we have some coconut water as well. So, and the elderberry syrup is not expired. So we are good. And so I took my, that coping mechanism and brought myself down a little bit. And then I did my other thing, you know, my other coping mechanism. I ordered a scone. Everything's fine now, <laughs> right? So I put that aside and I sat down to put my thoughts together to write this sermon this morning. I think that sometimes, instead of being curious about our fear and wondering where in our hearts it comes from and how it got there and who put it there and what it might mean um, and how to even care for that hurting part of ourselves, we settle for coping mechanisms to mask over, numb, forget, or rationalize those fears away. Now, in our passage today, there are two groups of people that would definitely consider, be considered not to be disciples, right? Um, there's Herod, who recounts um, his murder of John the Baptist and decides that this Jesus he is hearing about is actually John, who's raised from the dead. And then there's the neighbors and family and childhood acquaintances of Jesus, who took offense at Jesus' wisdom in his hometown and because of whom Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. And sandwiched between these two stories, we have this incredible passage uh, about Jesus sending out his disciples for the first time. 
to do some preaching and healing as an extension of Jesus' own ministry and sort of like a beginning of their own. And these large chunks in uh, Mark's gospel that we've been going over for the last few weeks have blended to addressing more like larger overarching themes. So a few weeks ago, Caleb talked about uh, the parables. And then uh, about four weeks ago, I spoke about sin and healing. And then a couple weeks ago, I spoke about um, healing and also faith as a part of that. Um, and so today's passage sort of continues on, and it also indicates this sort of larger movement that it seems that these narratives, it seems like uh, these groups of passages taken together, little by little, are putting flesh on this incarnation of God in Jesus. They're putting flesh on um, this eternal God around what is this God really like. These understandings are crucial and foundational understandings about who God is, who humans are, and the relationship between the two. And this, this flow in this narrative of Mark begins, and it begins with these sort of hidden secret things of parables, right? Uh, it's kind of sort of hidden and masked, and not everyone understands them, and they're sort of riddles. And then uh, you get to where Jesus is healing people, and when he heals them, he says, don't tell, don't tell anyone I'm healing. Don't tell anyone what I've done. And then by the time he gets to the, the paralytic who's on the mat that has to be lowered through the roof, everyone knows about what he's done because they haven't kept it a secret. And so the word is getting out more and more and more. And then when you get to our passage today, this popularity of Jesus and, and these crowds has really picked up. And we, we finally today arrive at like, you know, Jesus is now, like, his fame has really become a thing. He's, like, such a big deal. Like, he's, like, such a big deal. Like, your mother-in-law is telling you about him at breakfast, and then you get on the new, and you get in the car, and you turn on the radio, and you hear about him on the radio, and then you get on social media, and he's, like, there's, like, an infographic about Jesus versus regular sorcerers uh, and their miracles on Facebook. And then there's, like, and then your mother calls and tells you the latest on this Jesus and what he's doing. He's like that big. Jesus is so noteworthy at this point that he is, um, he is like, he is like commentary on the Super Bowl halftime show newsworthy, commentary worthy. It's like a new social rule. You have to make a call on this Jesus. Like that's the level that this Jesus is at. Like, it's a new social rule. You actually have to comment on him. And um, not surprisingly, his family, who he goes to visit, and his neighbors and those he's familiar with, those he grew up with, uh, he visits them and they're like hearing about him. And they're like, who does this guy think he is? There's his mom. They're his brothers. We've seen him. I changed his diaper as a kid. You know, like, they're like, he's not really that big of a deal. But he is that big of a deal because even the King Herod hears about him. And King Herod hears, like, these interpretations, like, could he be John the Baptist? Could he be one of the prophets? Could he be Elijah? And maybe because of his own guilt a little bit, Herod is like, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, the one that I killed. And that's his judgment of him, of Jesus. Now, 
Here's the thing about big deals. Here's the thing about, here's the thing about power of influence. Um, how you define one, how you define the one with the power uh, or the big deal ends up saying a lot about your own power. So if you are afraid and you want something to go away, you might rationalize, arrest, write off, critique, judge, and try to control your judgment of that thing. When we are afraid, we use our power, what's in our power, to maybe have power over the thing that we're afraid of. We sometimes use our power to stay in power. Which, um, talking about power and sorcerers, uh, reminds me that I am now finally reading Harry Potter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, starting with book one, Sorcerer's Stone. And, and because I'm reading Harry Potter, and because you all showed up to hear what I have to say today, uh, I'm going to take some liberties, you know, that I think will help us here with this passage and with Harry Potter. But don't worry, because there are scones involved. Um, so, uh, Gringotts, Gringotts Bank, am I, say, am I saying that right, Chelsea? Okay, Gringotts Bank is the most secure in the wizarding world. In fact, it may be the only bank, really. It's run by goblins, so it's super secure for that reason. Um, and rumor is that they have dragons that like guard the, the safety deposit boxes. Um, so no one's really ever been successful in trying to rob it. But um, maybe the most valuable item that's at Gringotts Bank is something called the Sorcerer's Stone. The stone that, if you possessed it, had the power to keep you from dying. The alchemist Nicholas Flamel is the only wizard known to have been able to create a sorcerer's stone. And in the book, in the current of the book, it's called the Sorcerer's Stone, he is currently 665 years old. Now, today I brought with me, because, because sorcerer's stones are very rare, as I just told you, um, they're hard to get your hands on. So instead I bought, I brought a sorcerer's scone, which are much more available to the wider public. So this is my sorcerer's scone um, this morning. Um, and whoever possesses this scone has power over death. And whoever possesses it need not fear. Um, if you possess this, you will have all you need. You don't, you don't need to get pulled into struggle and strife and fear about the future because you can be above all that and you can be confident and secure in your survival and your salvation if you possess this scone. You know, I... um I fear that this is sometimes how Christians have preached the gospel. We send out missionaries with 
the sorcerer's scone. And they go out with it, and it's magic. And they pass it out like candy, the promises of being freed from, from death and freed from struggle. They take the scone to the entire world, hoping one day to close that 1040 window of those who have never heard about this magical scone. They say, swallow this. Jesus died for us, and now we can be free from fear. But I wonder if the whole time for some of this, this scone that we have called the gospel is actually just an incarnation of our fear. Hoping to skip over the things that we are afraid of, we buy into fairy tales about what this gospel is. I wonder if what we have been on occasion, what we've been offering on occasion is nothing more than a prosperity gospel that uses our power to stay in power. I wonder if it uses our privilege to protect and save ourselves. In Mark 8, jumping a little ahead, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now this is a throwback to Herod because they answer the same answers that Herod has heard. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say another prophet. But then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah. In other words, you wield the power of God to save us. But what is this power of God like? If the power of fear led Herod and, led Herod and Jesus to judge had let, I'm sorry, led Herod and Jesus' family to judge who he was incorrectly. Then what does it mean that Jesus embodies the power of God? How is that different? As soon as Peter says this in Mark 8, Jesus begins to teach them something about this realization. He teaches them that he must now undergo suffering and be rejected and killed. But Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter wants Jesus to be sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. He wants Jesus to be a political activist. Peter wants a, a sorcerer's scone. But Jesus responds like this, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking of the things of people and not things of God. And then he says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, who people judged Jesus to be was not only a question for Jesus' family and his neighbors back in the day. It wasn't only a question for Herod, but it is still a burning question for us who have heard the stories of Jesus and to be his disciples today. Who Jesus is judged to be makes all the difference about how we go about following him. 
Richard Rohr says that Christians today have been so have been inoculated against the true effects of the gospel, causing us to largely thank Jesus instead of honestly imitating him. See the difference? When, when Jesus gives us a scone of power, we can thank him for it. But when we, when we say he's the Messiah, the power of God, and invites us to follow him to the cross, we have to imitate him. See, the power of fear incarnate in this scone drives humans to achieve success and knowledge, to be above discomfort and pain and death. We hope with that power we will be happy. But the power of God gives humans a way to be that embraces pain and suffering and death, and yet finds joy and sustenance somehow within it. Charitable programs need outcomes. Businesses need data. News stories need projections. Governments need evidence of success. But somehow deep in our souls, I think that we know that the way forward won't come through these sources. If you've dove into to politics or business or nonprofit work, then you know that these ways can be easily shallow or reactive, sometimes hugely hypocritical organizations. As necessary as organizations are for human development and growth, Jesus didn't actually come to start one. Jesus came as an organism. Jesus came in a body. And that primarily teaches its members through embodied practices, a way of being in the world. The disciples of Jesus embody faith, which is this inner knowing that God is both good and faithful to God's people. The disciples of Jesus embody hope, which is this vision for the future that anticipates a resurrection of all of the beautiful but lost causes. And the greatest of these is the way the disciples of Jesus embody love. Love is an ethic, an outcome disregarding ethic. It's a practice that doesn't need a result. It's a self, it's self-feeding and needs no goal to validate it. It's a perpetual energy machine, and it often leads to suffering and death. And I'm afraid that some of us, in seeking to be disciples of Jesus, as an organization, we have too often worshipped our organizations instead of our inspiration. Sought powers of protection instead of crosses of surrender. In this way of discipleship, the ends will never justify the means because the means are the end in this Jesus way. As disciples, we will never embody the love of God by protecting ourselves, 
staying safe and building walls to segregate and separate the poor, the hungry, the sick, the homeless. Since God is most likely to be found eating at their tables and embodied in them anyway. More than ever, I feel like we need we need a theology of person which relies on this way of being that we see in God's incarnation of Jesus, finding the value and worth and belovedness of each person in the way that we see God's revelation in Christ. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have come to an amazing conclusion that no person, no person's life is more valuable than another. This is a huge step forward. It has fed their philanthropic efforts over the past several years. But I wonder if that realization doesn't go far enough. For many of us, do treat others the way that we want to be treated. It caught my eye. Someone on Twitter this week said, if you suffered in life and want other people to suffer as you did, because you turned out fine. You did not, in fact, turn out fine. See, people are often being fair. But if we aren't healed and whole and know our own belovedness first, then our fear will just be an incarnation of something that's not really Christ. We will keep passing out scones of power because we are afraid Insisting to others, we have the good news. Come, join our side, take it. Instead of showing up empty-handed, sandwiched between these stories of, of Herod and Jesus' family making judgments about who he is, we have this incredible passage where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples for the first time to do some preaching in ministry as an extension of Jesus's, but also the beginning of their own. And when Jesus sends out his disciples, it's telling, isn't it? He sends them out empty-handed. No bag, no bread, no money. The only, the only provisions that Mark's gospel offers, which I think are beautiful, is he says you can wear sandals, good, and take a staff. And one, one commentator I was reading suggested that this was because of the Passover. That the people, uh, when God told the people to eat the Passover, he said, do it with sandals on your feet and a rod in your hand because you will ha have to leave this land back quickly and you need to be ready. And that those are these two provisions that the disciples are able to have. He leaves them empty-handed, ready to go on mission. He sends them out this way so that they must rely on God and others for their provision. He, in a way, he doesn't let them prepare for the inevitable needs that they're going to have. They're going to get hungry. When Jesus sends his disciples out two by two, he gives them authority. But he tells them to take nothing. See, the path of discipleship is not one of power but a path toward love and sacrifice and surrender. It's not about having a good luck charm in your pocket, but having an ethic of love that often leads to physical, emotional, political, and even familial peril. 
And Kayla preached a few years ago in another sermon about a scone, if you can believe it, about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And the devil asked Jesus to make this stone become a scone. And, and Jesus answers, we do not live by scone alone. And, but isn't that, that good? We do not live by scone alone. And that's why communion bread is more than bread, right? This bread is more than bread. It's not just a coping mechanism to deal with our fear of not having enough food or to deal with our hunger. It's a mystery that our provision comes through this Jesus, this word made flesh, this incarnation of God that is not just a symbol of God's presence, but a sacrament, a way that God is present, an actual way. Not just a scone, but a way. When Jesus offered this meal to his best friends, he says to them, eat this. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in my memory. Now I wonder, what if Jesus wasn't saying, do this in my memory and be thankful? But what if Jesus was saying instead, take this bread and let my way of being be your sustenance. And let it be a part of you. Break your body and shed your blood for those God loves. And do it in my honor. We've got to stop thanking Jesus for the cross. And start surrendering our fears to God's way. Going through, not over and around or above or past our fears. But facing them and letting them reveal our heart states. And surrendering those states to God as we'll see a father do later in this book in Mark 9 when he says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Being a disciple of Jesus is so much about making the right judgment about who Jesus is and what his way is. And his way is not about grasping a scone of power, but about surrendering to a way of love. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, your incarnation, the ways that you have brought us to where we are, that your presence has united your church. I pray that we would be so faithful to your calling, to your way of being in the world, that our fears would not keep us from passing out coping mechanisms, that we would rather offer the living sustenance of your way of being in the world, and that we ourselves would be able to receive it we would be curious about our fears 
you would allow them to open us up to where you want us to be, what you want us to do. Pray that it would open us up to healing, to restoration, to hope for a future, to faith more than we have, to faith in your faithfulness, to know our own belovedness, that we may join in this long and wide river of love. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask Melanie um, Collins he'll play softly for a few minutes um, until the kids get in here and we can see our next song together. So just take these next few minutes to reflect as we share this time.